Father, we thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, that your name is truly above all names. Father, there's no rival for your throne, and I pray that that will be true in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you will just saturate this environment here today. Father, your spirit all over the kids' barn, all over this room, Father, we pray that you will do a new work in us this morning, that that you will, if there are next steps that need to be had this morning, I pray that that you will break addictions this morning, that you will uh, have people proclaim, maybe for the first time, that you are king over their lives. Father, we love you a whole lot and everything for the glory of your name and in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, you all are dismissed. Kids through youth, you're dismissed to Kids Barn. go to the Lord in prayer a second time. Father, I pray that you'll speak through me today. I pray that you will take the words out of my mouth before I can utter them. Father, I pray, I pray for that double portion of your spirit this morning, Father. Saturate your spirit all over this congregation. Father, I know this is weighty, and I pray that you will, uh, we pray for the one. Father, if there's one in here who takes next steps to to, to break the addiction, to, to proclaim you even further, to see you a little bit more clearly this morning, how much you love us, how much power, how much authority you have in your name. Father, we pray for that one this morning. We love you a whole lot. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those. We will be in Philippians chapter 1 today, and uh, we're going to be looking at one of the most iconic statements that the Apostle Paul ever made. It's a staggering statement, and John Piper calls it the ultimate win-win. And I'll read that here in just a minute, but in preparation for this message, uh, I thought about the movie Cool Hand Luke. Has anybody seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? Yes, all-time favorite movie. Maybe about 55 years old, but it's my all-time favorite movie. And essentially what happens is this guy gets caught cutting the heads off of parking meters, so he gets put into jail, and he becomes a part of this uh, jail railroad working crew, and the powers at play just try to get Luke to submit to them, right? There's, a, there's an alpha uh, you know, jail member who tries to get him to submit, he won't, and then uh, the, the uh, jail guards and things, they try to get him to submit, and he won't, and then finally... The warden comes in, and this is where we get the famous line. Does anybody know it? What we have here is failure. Okay, good. More people than I thought have seen that movie. What we have here is failure to communicate. They just can't break Luke. They try to get him to bend the knee, to submit to the authorities, and he just won't do it. He's, he's free. He's free. And uh, while that movie was fiction, this was actually true of the life of the Apostle Paul. And if you were Paul's enemy, you had a really hard time because there was nothing that you could do with them. They'd say, Paul, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And he'd say, okay, great, let's do that because to die is gain. I'll be face to face with my Savior. 
They say, well, okay, we're not going to do that, Paul. We're going to keep you alive. And then he'd say, oh, good, that's fruitful labor for me. I'm excited about that. That's great. They say, well, okay, Paul, but we're going to put you in jail. He'd say, okay, I'll just convert your prison guards and then write letters about Jesus that people will be transformed by for 2,000 years. They say, okay, Paul, we are going to send you to jail and we're going to make you suffer. We're going to torture you and we're going to make you suffer. He'd say, well, I consider the sufferings of this world nothing compared to the glorious riches that will be revealed in us through Christ. There's nothing you could do with it. What do you do with that kind of mentality? Nothing. That's the answer. And in fact, it was this kind of mentality that led me to Jesus in the first place. I was 18, a freshman at Lipscomb University, and there was a senior on the baseball team who would always just smoke me in a race every time. I mean, I'd even start cheating. I'd be like, all right, on your market set, and then I'd take off, you know, and then he'd still, like, sure enough, just come behind me and beat me. I quickly realized I was not going to beat this guy in a race. So my next step was, all right, I can't beat him in a race, but let me try to knock him down a little bit so that I would feel a little bit better about myself. So I started making some digs at him, and then his response was, you know, I love it when people make digs at me. I take it really as a compliment. That's great. Thank you. Like, all right. You know, so the next thing I said is, you know, well, one day I'm only 18. You know, I'll get better at this whole race thing, and one day I'm going to start beating you, which, by the way, never happened. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to start beating you one day. What are you going to say then? And then his response was, I'll say, great job, man. You earned that. Way to go. Look at the progress that you've made. And I just said, ah, I can't do anything to get at this guy. So my next step was, all right, what is it about this guy that makes him so content in every circumstance? So I started following him around like a child, just, you know, what is it about him? What is it about him? And I quickly realized he had this security in Christ that was so infectious. And I knew, following him around, I knew that there was this contentment in Christ that no matter what came, no matter what happened, he could deal with the situation. And it wasn't that he never got sad or was, you know, always in a great mood. It's just that he knew that he could endure any situation no matter what happens because his contentment was in Christ. And this is the mentality that makes the enemy just lose his mind because there's nothing he can do about it. Philippians 1 21. This is it. This is the ultimate win-win, as John Piper calls it. Paul says this. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, the original translation does not even have the word is. It just says, to live, Christ. To die, gain. So while many people live their entire lives fearing death, Paul says, that the sacrifice for him isn't death, it's living. Living is the sacrifice. He goes on to say that, that um, what shall I choose? And he, he ultimately uh, concludes that he wants to stay on our behalf. That's the sacrifice. A question I have for us this morning is, when is the last time you've just sat and pondered with great anticipation the day that you'll be face-to-face with Jesus? It's been a long time for me until preparing for this message. See, most of us are controlled by fear of that day. We rearrange our entire lives to avoid that day, but Paul takes the sting out of it completely and says, I long for that day. That day will be a great gain for me, yet while I'm here, there's fruitful labor for me to do in the name of Jesus until that day comes. What would it look like for us to completely take the sting out of the day that we fear most by saying, 
that's going to be a great day. To see Jesus face to face, I long for that day, yet I shall stay here as long as Jesus wants me for fruitful labor until that time. Think about how that outlook might change our contentment and our engagement on the day-to-day. Now, in order to kind of understand the the full impact of what Paul is saying here, let's kind of take a step back and look at some context. Paul is writing here to the church at Philippi. It was a uh, colony of Rome. It was a very beautiful, elegant place where Roman soldiers often retired to. A lot of people with kind of status and wealth often retired to this area, and they were extremely generous to Paul. And Paul is writing this letter in part just to say, Thank you for the contributions from Philippi to his ministry. But they did, they had a struggle of their own. Anytime somebody was a Roman Christian, there was a lot of tension that they had. Um, the struggle for the Roman Christian was that, that the Christian life often directly clashed with Roman life. And there was a, a lot of reasons why, but I'll just go through uh, three here this morning. One was that Rome was polytheistic. And Christianity is monotheistic, but that's not as much a, a deal as you might think. Um, the second is that Romans were big into brutality and dominance. In fact, if you were um, a slave, you could really only earn your freedom by killing a, a bunch of other slaves in the gladiator arena, arena to kind of show that you, know, you were the survival of the fittest kind of mentality. And, and yet Christianity... You juxtapose that Christianity is a very much self-sacrificing kind of mentality. But the, but the biggest issue, by far, was that while Rome would allow you to have any God that you want, they, they, they were very tolerant of, you can pray to this God, you can bow to this God, you can do all those things. But at the end of the day, you had one king, and one king only. And that was the emperor of Rome. The emperor of Rome was your king at the end of the day, and he had your allegiance at the end of the day. So do you understand kind of this tension that Christians might have had? Because, you know, we're to bow to the king of kings, Jesus, and here Rome is telling you, you must bow ultimately to the emperor of Rome. You can like Jesus, you can be a fan of Jesus, but to proclaim complete allegiance to Jesus, that was a problem. And I think here in America, we have a a little bit of a difficulty understanding this tension because we've been so blessed to live in a nation that doesn't have this dispute. From the beginning, it was established that we're one nation under God. The the hierarchy was never meant to be challenged, that, that we've identified that God is at the top, and no matter how great anything else might be, it, it is under God. But here in Rome, they don't have this luxury. It's allegiance to Rome or it's allegiance to Jesus. You might have heard the infamous story of the Emperor Nero, and this is almost exactly at the same time that Paul writes the letter to Philippi. They're, right, they're both right around uh, 60 AD. They're within, I mean, consensus is they're within two years um, of these two events. So uh, Nero wants a bigger kingdom. And so what he does is he sets burn to uh, his empire, and then he also sets burn to uh, sort of area around his empire so that he can build it back bigger. And 
what he does is, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll do this, and then I will blame the Christians for it. Because the Christians were a great scapegoat during that time because they were treated often as second-class citizens because often they would not bow to Rome. They would not pledge allegiance to Rome first and foremost. Their allegiance was to King Jesus. So it was very understandable when Nero says the Christians did it, the Christians did it, the Roman people had no problem accepting that as truth. So when Paul, so if you're in this time frame, think about this tension. All right, I'll say it again. You love Jesus, but you also have steep consequences for making Jesus king over your life. So when Paul says to live is Christ, to even be alive is Christ, everything is Christ, he's not even putting Rome into the equation here. Imagine this tension for people. If they make their whole lives Christ, it could very well cost them everything, including their own lives. And Paul knows that. So he answers that tension in their hearts right thereafter. Uh, and he says what? He says to live is Christ. And then he says, and to die is gain. He says there's nothing they can do to you. He knows what it is he's asking of them. He knows he's asking them to risk their lives. And then he ramps up the tension more directly in chapter 2. He says this, starting in verse 8. He says, talking about Jesus, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now check this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that word Lord means power and authority over all. He says you bow to the name of Jesus. He says the name at the very top is Jesus, not the emperor of Rome, it's Jesus. And so Paul ramps up this tension. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, every knee will bow at the feet of Jesus, not Nero. He says, a real king humbles himself. He doesn't use his position of power to gain for himself, to push people aside and punish others for his desires. He uses his power for other people to gain, taking the punishment for their sins on himself. And he says, Jesus is the one that you ought to give your allegiance to, first and foremost. He's the name above all names. And then in chapter 3, he continues to ramp up this tension. He says, uh, Paul knows that it's starting to settle in them, that this could cost them everything. And, and you know, there's, there's not just their lives at stake here. There's everything that they've earned to this point. Right? They've gained valor. They've gained um, reputation, they've gained status, they've gained wealth, and all that is at risk if they declare King Jesus. See, they could go on continuing to, to like Jesus, and they ride off into the sunset, and they continue to keep everything that they have, and they sort of have the best of both worlds. You could sort of rationalize that way of thinking, but if they pledge allegiance to King Jesus, they risk their status, their wealth, the reputation, everything, gone. So Paul addresses this tension in uh, Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, what he means by the flesh is not just your abilities, but the things that you have, the things that you own, the things that you've acquired. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, on the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But listen to this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I know what you're thinking. You've got a lot to lose. Trust me, I know I've got a lot to lose. In fact, I've lost those things. But at the end of the day, I consider them meaningless garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He was glad to give it all up because in doing so, he gained Christ. He tells them you might lose everything. You might even lose your Roman citizenship. But he says this beautiful verse, uh, line in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. See, to be a Roman citizen at that time, it was uh, so, so valued. I mean, there was a lot of people who lived in Rome, but not a whole lot of Roman citizens But he says, okay, even if you lose your status as a Roman citizen, I'll do you one better. You're a citizen of heaven, first and foremost. And that cannot be taken away from you. He's not talking about being a citizen of heaven one day. He's not talking about after you die, you have a ticket to heaven. He's saying that this is a transcendent citizenship right here among you where Jesus is king over your lives right now. See, the kingdom of God is here now. His kingship is here now, and it transcends every situation that we're a part of. He says, you lose it all on account of the gospel, that's okay. At the end of the day, you're a citizen of heaven. And then in chapter 4, he's kind of concluding his letter. He says this. He says, friends, don't worry. He says, I know what may be coming next for you guys as you pledge allegiance to King Jesus. Remember, keep in mind, he's writing this from from prison, so he knows. He knows what could happen. He knows some of them might get to see, might get to be a part of seeing great change in the culture. He also knows that they may suffer brutal, brutal deaths. But he says this, chapter 4, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I think verse 13 is one of the most maybe misused or misunderstood verses out there. He's not saying that he can do anything uh, in the name of Jesus. He's not saying he can win a game or he can get that promotion or all that. Remember last week how we talked about Jesus doesn't want to be a means to an end, but an end? He's saying that we can endure all situations because if we have him, we have everything. Because he offers a peace that transcends all understanding. We can say, come what may. If blessings come, praise. If hardships come, praise. If I don't get that promotion, praise. If I don't win that game, praise. Why? Because we can endure all situations if we have him with us. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows what he's asking of them. He knows to to give up allegiance to Caesar, which they've done all their lives, and give it to Jesus. He knows that there's going to be steep consequences. But he says it's so worth it. He says if anything keeps you from declaring Jesus 
as king, consider it garbage that you might gain Christ. Consider that valor even garbage. Consider your most prized possession garbage. And lastly, while Paul's uh, throughout this letter, by the way, it, you'll see Paul 16 times say the word rejoice or joy throughout this letter. It's a short letter. It's only four chapters. But he says it 16 times. And remember where he is in a jail cell. He says rejoice or joy 16 times. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. He says you can rejoice. Even in hardships, you can rejoice because he's with you. And if he's with you, you can endure anything. Now, okay, so you might be asking, all right, what is the application for me here today? You know, we don't struggle with the same things that the group of Philippi struggled with. Uh, it's a cool story, but how does it really apply to me? Well, the main point here today is this. We must call out anything that competes for our allegiance to Jesus. We must call it out so much that we label it trash. That we can label it trash. That we can look at that thing that we valued so long and say, yuck, get away from me that I might gain Christ. And friends, it's time for us to take out the trash that we might gain Christ. It's time to take out the trash that we might gain Christ. Certainly isn't your allegiance to Rome here that's in competition for your uh, allegiance to Jesus, but something might be in competition with him. Maybe it's finances. Maybe you've got sort of a white-knuckled grip on your money. What would it look like to call it out as garbage and say, God, do what you want with this money. If it competes with you for my heart, I don't even want it. I'll send it packing wherever you tell me to send it that I might gain you in return. Or maybe it's entertainment. You can't seem to avoid binge-watching shows so you're sacrificing intimacy with Jesus it's time to look at your tv and say you mean nothing to me that I might gain Christ I don't even want to turn this tv on until I've had meaningful deep intimate moments with my Lord Jesus or maybe it's your phone you can't seem to stop scrolling and scrolling for hours and before you know it it's really late and you haven't spent any time with Jesus what does it look like to evict your phone from your house Leave it in your car, leave it in a different room, and say, until I have had intimate moments with Jesus, until the hierarchy has been restored, I don't even want it in my presence. Or maybe it's possessions, or it's your home, or your career. What would it look like to put everything on the table so that we might gain Christ? Now, I'm not saying you need to go sell your home or, or quit your career. I just, I just mean to say that everything ought to be on the table that we might gain Christ. To be able to look at that thing that's competing for our hearts and be able to say, you mean nothing to me compared to Christ. And I can throw you out in a second if you compete for my allegiance to Christ. If our hearts are in a place where we can say, God, I count it all as garbage. I could get rid of all of that. I could spend the rest of my days with none of this if it means gaining Christ. That's where we need to be. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with a great career or entertainment or a phone or any of it. I just mean to reiterate that it is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Y'all know I'm a huge football fan. I love it all year 
round. I'm like checking in on the news and what's going on. But I would hope that if it starts to complete, uh, compete for my allegiance to Christ, that I would say, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I don't want it because I want to gain Christ. Y'all, you can always tell the value of something by what it is that you're willing to give up to obtain it. The Christians in Philippi gave up everything on account of making Christ king over their lives. And I mean everything. In our culture today, there's many Christians who won't even give up five minutes on their phone to spend an intimate moment with Jesus. What does that say that he's worth to them? Look, I'm not trying to be like too hard on this. I just mean to say that everything is Christ. To live is Christ. Christ doesn't want fans. He doesn't want us to just think he's a good guy. He doesn't just want us to be um, a, a salvation seeker. He doesn't just want us to embrace him one or two days a week. He wants to be everything because he knows that he is who our hearts were made for. He is where our soul becomes whole. He offers us a satisfaction that is found nowhere else. An intimacy, a peace, a joy that is offered nowhere else but in Him. I just plead with you, if there's anything else competing, throw it out. Because it's nothing that you might gain Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The question I'd like to leave us with today is, what is preventing us from embracing the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain? i got to be honest with you all. The longer I live, the less I've embraced this idea that to die is gain. Because i got a lot to lose. The more my family grows, the more I set goals for the future, the more I just want to be here. But Paul says, you can achieve all that. That's nothing compared to seeing Jesus in the flesh, face to face. I long for that day. He says, I long for that day. And if we are a group of people who truly embrace this ultimate win-win, to live as Christ, to die as gain, the ultimate win-win, the enemy's going to have a tough time. He's going to have a tough, tough time. As we close, I just want to draw your attention back to Philippians 1 real quick. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he says this. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So what Paul is doing here is he is following the example of Jesus. See, Jesus stepped off of his throne and traded it to carry a cross up the hill. Why? For our sake. He longed to be with the Father. He wanted to be in heaven and dwell with the Father. But he said, there's fruitful labor for me to do first. And it's on your behalf. It's on your behalf so that you may find life. Remember last week how we talked about how Jesus is the only bread that breaks for you. Your money will be in the hand of someone else someday. Someone else can do your job one day. Entertainment doesn't even give us a second thought. But Jesus, he wants you so much that he stepped off of the highest position possible 
to go to the lowest position possible, to die a brutal death on our behalf so that we could be with him forever. And I don't know about you, but I hope I always roll with that guy. The one who sacrificed himself, used his power, not for his own gain, but for us, and then demonstrated his power and authority even over death as he rose on the third day. That's the guy that I want to roll with. So this morning, if you have never proclaimed King Jesus, great time to do it. If there are gods that are starting to compete, that are kind of entering his presence, I pray this morning that you'll just confess those things, and I pray that you'll count them as garbage that you may gain Christ. There'll be a couple elders come down to the front, and if you just need somebody to pray with, maybe you want to talk next steps. Maybe you don't know what this looks like to declare Jesus as king of your life. I'd encourage you just to talk to somebody this morning. This is the best decision you'll ever make in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, first and foremost that that these words are true, that you have created an ultimate win-win situation, that we don't have to fear death. In fact, we can actually look forward to the day that we see you face-to-face in all your glory. And Father, I pray that this will be a, a church that continues to embrace that idea too, that to live is Christ, that everything is Christ. If we're here, Christ. There's fruitful labor to be done in your name. And Father, I pray that you'll reveal those things to us today. Create in us a church that embraces this ultimate win-win situation. Father, we love you, and it's your name. It's in your name all these things are possible. We love you a whole lot.